Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of Most Notorious, a woman in the throes of despondency stabs the man who ruined her and is brought to trial for it. And then he asked his wife to not let her go out, and he returned to work. But when he came home, his wife had not been able to prevent her from going out. And what she was going to do was to pursue Henry Ballard, follow him up the steps of the Astor House, and stab him. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. You are here with me once again. I so appreciate it. I'm so pleased to introduce as my guest this week, Julie Miller. She earned her doctorate in United States history at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. She has taught in the history department at Hunter College And she is currently the curator of early American manuscripts at the Library of Congress. The name of her first book is Abandoned, Foundlings in 19th Century New York City. And her most recent book, which she is here to talk about today, is called Cry of Murder on Broadway, A Woman's Ruin and Revenge in Old New York. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Yes. So where did you first get the idea to write this book? I stumbled on the story of Amelia Norman. This book is about a woman called Amelia Norman who stabbed her seducer on the steps of the Astor House Hotel in New York in 1843. And I I stumbled on the story when I was writing my first book, which is about foundlings, abandoned babies, in in the same time and place. And what interested me about it, well, a lot of things interested me about it, but one of the main things that interested me about it at first was that it seemed as if Norman, by her act of violence, had inadvertently stumbled into becoming um, an example for a group of reformers who seemed to have nothing to do with her own anger at that moment. So what happened was Norman was championed by several individuals and groups. She, one of the, these groups was um, a group called the American Female Moral Reform Society. And what they were doing and what they had been doing since the 1830s is championing what they called criminalization of seduction. So to understand this, you have to understand what seduction was in law in the 19th century. In the 19th century, seduction, it was taken from English law. It was a very old law. And basically what it meant was that when a single woman was seduced, in other words, coerced into having sex, that that was the way it was understood, then her father or master could sue for damages. So the idea was her labor was owned by another. So... There were several ways in which this had become obsolete by the first half of the 19th century, and the American Female Moral Reform Society felt that 
the seducer ought to go to jail. In other words, that it shouldn't be a, a simply a question of labor and loss of services of a worker, but that, that a man who had taken advantage of a woman's virtue um, should go to jail. And the, one of the contexts of this was a depression. This is the period uh, right after a severe economic collapse, the Panic of 1837. And in this period, I think very acutely, um, a woman's virtue had a kind of a monetary value. You know, the idea was that if she was ruined, right, that was the term that was used, and she, her, her future was lost. You know, she could no longer marry. She could no, no longer find a job as a domestic servant or something like that. So, you know, the idea was that in a, in a time of economic depression, a man could be ruined because of his financial loss. He might have been defrauded out of his money, for example. And he had recourse to the law, but a woman did not. So that was one group of people who, when they saw Norman's predicament, they immediately began to write about her in their magazine called The Advocate of Moral Reform, something to which one might not want to subscribe today, but it was fairly popular in the 1840s. <laughs> and um, they they championed her. And well, I can talk about this more later, but so that, that was one group of people who, who were on her side. Another was Lydia Maria Child. And Lydia Maria Child in the 1830s and 1840s was an abolitionist and she was an author. And in this period, she was just beginning to get involved in the movement for the rights of women, which was just barely starting. What we think of as the beginning at Seneca Falls, New York, um, with the Women's Rights Conference of that year, was in 1848. This is this is 1843. It's before, but the truth is that the women's rights movement had been cooking for quite a while before, and the women who would eventually attend the Seneca Falls Convention were already beginning to think about women's rights. And Lydia Maria Child was Amelia Norman's closest champion. She came. She visited her in jail. She attended the trial, and after the trial, she took Amelia Norman home with her, and she interpreted Norman's. Uh, predicament also in terms of the obsolescence of the the law of seduction as it stood at that time, but from a slightly from she she also felt that that seduction ought to be criminalized, but she also felt that it was akin in some sense to slavery because it involved the ownership of one person's labor by another, and she felt that women were being treated like chattel if someone else could receive damages when they were seduced. So that that was her interpretation. And she also felt that Norman had suffered all the things that women suffered in the 19th century. She hadn't had a proper education. She didn't have career opportunities and so on. So, you know, your original question was, how did I get interested in this? I thought here is someone who sort of commits this act without necessarily thinking all these grandiose thoughts about the law and women's rights and so on and so forth. And I thought this is a way that stories are told. In other words, that when people have causes, they very often, something happens, you know, somebody does something that may or may not have anything to do overtly with their cause, but they shape stories out of these events and they use those stories. But as I went along, I really came to feel a little bit differently and to felt, feel that Amelia Norman with her violent act really embodied the anger of the women's rights movement as it what came to be developed. Right, right, yeah. So I'd like to talk a bit about New York City in the 1840s uh, so we can set the scene for your book, specifically Broadway, which has an important role in this story. Could you describe it to us? Uh, tell us what it was like. Yeah, you know, Broadway, one of the best describers of Broadway right at this time was Charles Dickens, because Dickens visited New York in 18, I think it was 18, well, his book was published in 1842, but I think it was about the year before. Um, and in his book, American Notes, he describes how bustling it was. And um, it was, you know, if you think of Broadway at the time that George Washington lived on it, right, when he was president and the Capitol was in New York in 1789, it was sort of a quiet street. You could, you could probably stand on Broadway and see the water from both sides, you know, because there weren't the tall buildings that there are today. But what was starting to happen is the city, New York began on it, Manhattan began on its southern tip and it moved northward. And in this period, Broadway was, this is, I should say, the part of Broadway where Amelia Norman committed her crime. This was the Astor House. The Astor House was on Broadway opposite City Hall Park. 
So City Hall Park is a triangle and its northern part is on Chambers Street. And this occurred about two, three blocks south of that. So this is a part of Broadway that we now think of as being really quite far downtown. But at the time, it was beginning to represent the really bustling, business-like part of the city. And the place where this took place is important. So the Astor House Hotel was uh, completed in the late 1830s, 1830s. Um, and it was the biggest, fanciest, most modern, most luxurious hotel in the city. And Henry Ballard, who was the man who Amelia Norman attempted to kill, but she didn't, in fact, kill him. He survived. But he had been living in the Astor House when they were carrying on their affair. And she was a poor servant. So the Astor House kind of represented the disparity in their circumstances at a very difficult time. Um, And at the time that she um, walked up the steps to stab him, Henry Ballard was no longer living there. He was actually living around the corner, but he was still coming there to eat in one of its big, fancy dining rooms. And in those dining rooms were the kind of people who very much represented um, a certain sort of tribe in the city. And these were young men who came to the city from other places. Henry Ballard came from Boston, for example. And they were young, they didn't have families, and they were in business, and they were there to make a lot of money. And even though the city was still recovering from this depression, the business uh, environment was very, very dynamic. And it, you know, it was recovering pretty quickly. So someone like Henry Ballard, while, you know, while other people were suffering, he was still able to eat these expensive meals at the Astor House Hotel with other young men like him. And they participated in, in, a, in a culture of sort of what, what historians call a sporting culture. In other words, there were a whole lot of activities just for young single men, including prostitution, a whole lot of publications, for example, just sort of directed at them. So the, the Astor House represented everything that was up and coming and money and business and sort of um, indulgence. That's really what it represented. And Broadway, which was, you know, right, running right by outside it, was, you know, busy and bustling and people coming and going. And one of the things that people noticed about Broadway was that virtue and vice were sort of walking together there. Sometimes it was hard to tell one from the other. And one of the, the symbols of that was prostitutes. So prostitutes just walked openly up and down Broadway among everybody else who was walking up and down Broadway. And this was one of the sites. I mean, this is one of the things you could see. And opposite Broadway was City Hall Park, which at the time was just called the park because there was no Central Park as yet. And in, in City Hall Park, there were demonstrations, there were Fourth of July celebrations, there, it was constantly busy. It's very different from what it's like now. So before Henry Ballard meets Amelia Norman, he does have a, he has a mistress. Well, you know what? I will ask you about that in a bit, (laughs) but maybe before we talk about that, would you share some of Amelia Norman's background? Okay. Um, In the, in the first half of the 19th century, a lot of young people in the United States migrated from the country to the city. The cities were the places where you could work. And this, um, you know, constituted a really important social change where young people were separating themselves from their families and they were going to earn their livings on their own. And many young women came to cities to work as servants. And this is not unrelated to um, the change in this period from a society in which heads of household really own the labor of the people who lived in their household to a period where individuals were increasingly recognized, individual rights. And this is, this is big. I mean, this is, this is the period of abolition, right? This is the, the, in the 1830s, the abolition movement began. Um, uh, indentured servitude eventually um, was outlawed in the United States in the 19th century. And this is the period of the women's movement. So this notion that a person could all earn their own living and live on their own, this is very much a feature of this period. So waves of young people 
left their rural homes. Women very often went to cities. Men sometimes went west, right? But men went to cities too. So Amelia Norman was born around 1818 in New Jersey, in a mountainous part of New Jersey, actually where I went to summer camp, which was sort of interesting because when I was researching this book, I knew that area. It, so she, she was from Sparta, New Jersey, which is a village in the mountains of northwestern New Jersey. And she grew up, when we think of New Jersey today, we think of a suburban place. But in the first half of the 19th century, you know, around the time when she was born and when she was growing up, it was actually quite rough. It was a place where um, there wasn't a lot of um, communication with, with New York or Philadelphia, which were the two closest cities. Um, it took a long time to get from one place to another. Her parents, for example, and her grandparents, when they lived there, it was really a frontier. So, you know, it, 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 was, a, it was very different from what, it, what it's like today. And it was very interesting to read about it at that time. So she grew up in a, on a farm and her father and her brothers, in addition to farming, they also had an iron forge, which was very typical of that area. There was a lot of iron mining in that area. And many people earned a living in addition to farming from iron mining because the farming was very, very poor because it was hilly and swampy. So you couldn't make a great living by farming. And it was a place where there was a lot of alcoholism. The iron industry was a very, very rough industry. It used slaves for labor, for example. It, was, it destroyed the environment. So when you think of the countryside, it was not a peaceful place. And in cities, as cities grew in the 19th century, there developed a very romantic idea of what the countryside was like. And it was very unrealistic because, in fact, places like Sparta, where Amelia Norman came from, were not lovely places with bubbling streams. I mean, they had some bubbling streams, obviously, but it was a very, very hard place to live. Educational opportunities were very, very limited. And Amelia Norman did not know how to write. So it seems pretty clear that she didn't have a chance to go to school. So her family had troubles. Her, her mother... There's a very complicated story, which I had some trouble picking apart, but her mother appears to have initially been married to her father's brother, and then the father's brother took off, and she, and the her mother, Rebecca, married her father, Peter Norman, and had this fam had a family, and then she died when Amelia Norman was quite young, and then her father remarried. So she grew up in a family where there was a stepmother, which is, was often um, identified. There was a famous study done in the 1850s by a New York doctor, William Sanger, who interviewed a lot of prostitutes in New York, about 2,000 prostitutes, and determined that having a stepmother was one of the reasons why girls went into prostitution. So who knows? You know, I mean, that could have had something to do with it. Um, one of her brothers was always in trouble with the law. Um, in fact, one of the things I discovered was that at the time that she was arrested for stabbing Henry Ballard, two of her brothers were in jail for a similar crime. So she came from a violent family where violence was kind of a form of expression. She wasn't like Elizabeth Cady Stanton or Lydia Maria Child who could write an essay about women's rights, right? She, the, the tools she had available to her were violence. I mean, that was basically what, how she knew to express herself. Um, but she had another side. You know, she was also someone who was able to behave in a way that allowed her to be hired by a neighbor um, to come to New York and serve as the uh, governess to her children and a household servant. So she wasn't she wasn't somebody who was who was uncontrollably violent. She was somebody who was able to be violent, but who in fact did very. From from the testimony at her trial, it's clear that she made um, friends in New York, that she had friends in Sparta, and there were people who were willing to help her. So what happened was when she was about 16, her neighbor, a woman named Eliza Merriam, and her husband, Francis Merriam, took Amelia to New York to work for them. And the Merriams were in the soap business, which is, I found very fun because, you know, the soap was sort of a new thing at the time. People didn't necessarily wash with soap. Imagine how it smelled. Um, so they were, they were, again, they were in a business that was the kind of thing that you could have in a city. It was a time when, you know, when you were, if you lived in a city, you were surrounded by middle-class people who could afford luxuries like soap. So the Merriams did very well. They were able to hire a servant like Amelia Norman. Their business was fine. And then along came the Panic of 1837, and their business apparently collapsed. It d disappeared from the, the city directories. 
um, which were sort of the version of the phone book, except without a telephone number in the 19th century. Um, and they became boarding house keepers. And at that time, Amelia Norman lost her job with them. And she kind of went around to a bunch of different jobs. And she actually came back to them at one point, which is you could in the trial, it was clear that they were continuing to keep an eye on her. And another of employers did, too. She evidently had some kind of epilepsy. And at the trial, her former employers described how they took care of her when she had ep- epilepsy. So she was she was a complicated person. You know, she was an interesting person. And the fact that she couldn't write and that all the speech we have of her is recorded by what other people wrote, you know, what other people t- took down about what she said. So we don't have, it's very hard to develop a really good sense of, you know, what she might have said for herself. Um, that's very, it's all mediated through what other people said about her. So she, she, after she lost her job with the Merriams, after their soap business collapsed, she met Henry Ballard and he initially um, courted her, you know, as if he was going to marry her. And then he took her to a brothel and seduced her. And this was, you know, if you've read um, uh, Clarissa by Samuel Richardson, it sounds like something out of a novel, right? I mean, it doesn't sound like some real thing. And there is some doubt in my mind, at least about what actually happened because during the trial, her lawyers evidently, you know, went to great lengths to paint her in as sympathetic a light as possible. And one of the really interesting things about this period, the 1830s, 1840s, this, this is a time long before our visual culture, when people were really intoxicated by language. You know, this is the period when people listened to long political speeches they went to the courtrooms to attend trials, as, as happened at a million on this trial, was crowded every single day. Um, they listened to um, preachers. This is a, a period of charismatic preachers. This is the period of the mystery novel and of investigative journalism and the theater and the penny press. And people just went crazy for novels. And there was a lot of confusion in people's minds between fact and fiction. One of the int- most interesting things I discovered was that Eugene Sue, the French novelist, um, he wrote this big novel called Mysteries of Paris. In fact, it's, it was a serial novel. I actually found it very hard to find a single volume version that I could even read, you know, because it, the version that you can find now doesn't really bear a relation to the, the way people actually read it. And it was translated and it arrived in New York just as Amelia Norman was stabbing Henry Ballard. And people compared Amelia Norman to the romantic heroine of that novel. All, all sorts of people who should have known better, like, for example, Margaret Fuller, the feminist author of Woman in the 19th Century. So, you know, so the, the protagonist of um, Eugene Sue's novel was an aristocrat abandoned at birth who um, is sort of captured and unwillingly made into a prostitute and then kills herself out of shame. But that's not what Amelia Norman did. Amelia Norman was a working woman at a time of economic distress who, in fact, rehabilitated herself after she her period of prostitution and found another job. You know, so she and she stood up for herself. She was nothing at all like the, the heroine of, of Sue's novel. So anyway, that's a long winded way of uh, talking a little bit about Norman's past. But you originally asked about Henry Ballard, right? So you asked about Henry Ballard's mistress. Henry Ballard came from Boston, and he was like a lot of young men from New England who came to New York because New York was a very dynamic business atmosphere. And he came in Boston from a family of dry goods merchants. And when he was very young, he worked for a dry goods store in Boston, and then he came to New York. And when he came to New York, he already had a mistress named Sarah who called herself Sarah Ballard. And he apparently picked her up in Philadelphia. When he moved to New York, he brought her to New York and then he dropped her in favor of Amelia Norman. And believe it or not, these two women met. Um, What happened with um, Henry Ballard and Amelia Norman is he seduced her. They stayed together for about a year. She had several abortions. She had one living child. And then he left her and the child. And when he returned, she tried to get him to help pay for the child. And he refused. And he said, very cruelly, you can go get your money. You can, you can, you can go get your money. Like you can go earn your living like other prostitutes do. And what Amelia Norman at that point did, somehow she, she met Sarah Ballard. I don't know how these two women met. 
but they did meet, they got to know each other, and they went together to Henry Ballard's importing store on the New York waterfront, and they approached him and they threatened him, and he ran out of the store, and she actually hit him over the head with her parasol, which sounds funny, but was probably not so funny at the time. And this was in the, the summer before she attacked him on the Astor House steps. We will return after these brief messages. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Grievous Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. And we're back. You mentioned that Ballard had taken Norman to a house of ill repute to seduce her. Was that a a common thing during this time? Um, What was going on there? (laughs) To my modern ears, it would seem a more appropriate thing to take a mistress to a hotel. Uh, um, I, I certainly understand why he wouldn't take her back to his home with, you know, his family background and intense public scrutiny in that era. But why a brothel, in your understanding? Well, there are a couple of things about this. Um, First, it was possible to do it. Such places existed. It was a place where he could do something like that in private. But the thing that I have come up against and not really found an answer to is, I think that in the telling of that story, this is a story that we know from Amelia Norman's lawyers. It's what they said about her at her trial. And they presumably learned this from her. It could be exactly what happened, but it exactly resembles many stories that were told in novels. And it's entirely possible that um, they uh, sort of embroidered this story to make it more sympathetic to the audience in the courtroom and the readers of the press who were very familiar with stories like this. It's very hard to know what happened. And, and one of the ways, one of the reasons they believe that story, that story would be appealing to the jury at Norman's trial is because it paints her as a victim. But it's not entirely clear to me. Like, I don't know what happened between them in private. That's something we just don't know. I mean, he may very well have simply raped her. I mean, that could have happened, but it equally could have happened that she understood what he was asking for. And because it was a time when she had difficulty finding a job, that she may have decided, as many other young women did, that she would become his mistress because it was a way to make a living. So I don't want to, you know, historians use this term agency, right? We we always want to find what people do for themselves and how people sort of express their own 
feelings. And I think, I think it's entirely possible that Norman was, in fact, not particularly innocent. And here I think it's important to remember that she came from a pretty rough background. You know, she came from a background where there was poverty, there was crime, and there was violence. So she, she may very well have simply made a decision that this is what she was going to do. Now, one of the interesting things about this is that when she became Ballard's mistress, which was really akin to prostitution, and it seems that when he abandoned her and the, and the child, she did in fact turn to prostitution with other men. There's very little documentation of that, but it's hinted at. But one of the things that I found very interesting is that her friends did not abandon her because the myth of the fallen woman, right, of the ruined woman, is that if a woman has sex outside of marriage, all that's left for her is death. And Lydia Maria Child, as a popular novelist, used that trope over and over. But that's not what happened to Amelia Norman, because people were more pragmatic. They understood that poor young women, women who worked as servants and didn't have much in the way of educational or economic or, you know, or work opportunities, they just didn't have a lot of choices. So the, the, the concept of ruin was a very middle-class concept. And I think working women simply lived in a different environment. This is not an original idea to me. Um, Christine Stansell, who wrote the wonderful book, City of Women, made this point in the 1980s. And um, I see how it worked here. I mean, I think that that is probably what was happening in her life. Yeah. So you write that in the days leading up to Miss Norman stabbing Ballard, she went into kind of a funk, a depression. Right. So what happened was Amelia Norman, in the summer of 1843, she stabbed Ballard on November 1st, 1843. And the summer of 1843 was the period when Ballard returned to the city and refused to support Norman and her child. This is the time when Norman teamed up with Sarah Ballard and approached Henry Ballard in his store. And at the time, again, she had been working as a prostitute, but she managed to find a job for herself working for um, a man named Berend, who owned a shirt store. And what she did was she worked as a servant in his home, and she also ironed the shirts. And he also became a champion of hers. Um, He argued on her behalf. He testified for her at the trial. And from his testimony, he he describes what she was like when she worked for him. First of all, she called herself Mrs. Ballard because the incident where she had attacked Ballard in his store, she used a pseudonym then, actually. But I guess she didn't want him to realize that she was that same violent person. And he and his wife liked her very much. They felt that she was was very, um, as he said, ladylike. One of the lost opportunities here is that he was an amateur photographer. So there must have been pictures of her. I think there must have been, but of course they're gone, right? It would have been wonderful to have them, but they don't exist. And one of the things she did was clean his daguerreotype plates. So when I read that, I thought, oh, too bad, too bad. Anyway, (laughs) it's a shame. But so what happened was that During the fall of 1843, between the incident at his store and the Astor House incident, Norman and Ballard apparently met a few times and sort of struggled with each other. In other words, she was trying to get him to help her, and he wouldn't do it. And during that time, she became very, very distraught. And her employer, Mr. Barron, noticed this. And he felt on on the day before that she attacked Ballard, she seemed to have just lost her mind. And he described seeing her pacing back and forth on a street near where Ballard lived, although, of course, he didn't know that. And she was, as he described it, eating in the street, which was, you know, very indecorous. And he said he had never seen her do anything like that. And he he didn't know what to do. And he went home to get his wife to bring her home, but she came home by herself And then he asked his wife to not let her go out and he returned to work. But when he came home, his wife had not been able to prevent her from going out. And what she was going to do was to pursue Henry Ballard, follow him up the steps of the Astor House and stab him. Do you have any idea as to what she was suffering from? This is an interesting question. She seems to have had some kind of epilepsy, but that's not what was going on here. Um, There was some kind of 
you know, I didn't know what to call it, but there was some kind of emotional distress in her family. She had a younger brother, Oliver, who was constantly in trouble with the law and doing things that just made no sense. You know, you know, uh, he would rob his neighbors, but he also attacked them seemingly for no reason. And he did this all his life. And he ended up in the New Jersey penitentiary. Um, so something was sort of going on there. So at her trial, her lawyers tried to make the case that the jurors should accept that she had been insane at the time of committing the crime. In other words, they wanted to use the insanity defense, which was very new at that time. And they did, it's, it, what, what, they, what they argued was that they should be allowed to enter evidence about Norman's treatment at Ballard's hands in order to show how she'd been driven mad and therefore why she was mad at the time that she attacked Ballard. But the judge didn't want to allow that. He said all that, it doesn't matter what their relationship was. All that mattered was, was she unable to tell right from wrong at the time that she committed her crime? And then he conceded a little bit and he said, well, you know, if you can show that she really was mad, then you can say a little bit about how it is that she came to be that way. Now, what happened at the crime, I should say the crime was attended every single day by crowds of people. People stood out in the hallway and banged at the door, the courtroom door, trying to get in. And the trial lasted for a week. It was covered by every newspaper and the newspapers, um, uh, what happened in the 19th century was newspapers clipped stories from other papers. So the story appeared all over the country. And when the jury finally met, they met for eight minutes and they acquitted her. And what they were thinking, I don't know. In other words, did they think she was insane? Did they think that she was, that, that Ballard was really the criminal? The, the, the tenor of the editorials at the time was that Norman was the innocent party and Ballard was the criminal. That was the, the, the consensus that people believed that, that Henry Ballard represented the kind of rapacious businessman who takes advantage of the poor. And of course, the atmosphere of the depression was what contributed to this, that, that Ballard was someone who simply took advantage of people and threw them out when he was done with them. And that um, the ruined woman was akin to the man who was defrauded of his money. And, and in this period, a lot of people could relate to that. And I looked at it, it was possible to find out who the jurors were. There were a mix of people. There were, for example, people who worked in the market. They were all men, of course. There were no women on New York juries at this time. So there were people who worked in the market. Um, there was one guy who was described as a broker, but I don't know a broker of what. But they were mostly kind of working class people or small sort of tradesmen of various kinds. And I suspect that just like all the people in this courtroom and all the people who read the papers and all the people who advocated for Norman, they were on her side. And Norman met two very interesting characters when she was in jail. She spent a couple of months in jail awaiting her trial. And the jail was the tombs. It was a big, fancy new building, very much built just at the same time as the Astor House. And both of those buildings, which were very... Um, sort of um, classical revival kind of buildings. The Astor House had columns in front and the, the tombs was built in this very forbidding Egyptian revival style with big heavy columns and sort of Egyptian motifs and things like that. And when she was in jail, and I should say both of those buildings represented the city as it was developing, right? So the Astor House represented the sort of wealth and luxury produced by business and the tombs represented kind of the other side, you know, the crime that big cities produced. And she was in jail with two newspapermen. One was um, George Wilkes. And George Wilkes wrote a book about his time in the tombs called Mysteries of the Tombs. He was obviously in, influenced by Eugene Sue's Mysteries of Paris, in which he wrote very sympathetically about Amelia Norman, arguing that Ballard, not she, was the real criminal. And the other one was Mike Walsh, who was a newspaperman. He, he was the editor of a working class paper called The Subterranean. And he was also a politician. And he also was very sympathetic to Norman. And this is what people, you know, people read these things. These Walsh and Wilkes, um, who were, they knew each other, obviously. And they both knew Norman and they both wrote sympathetically about her. They were not feminists, obviously, but they were able to sort of equate the, 
the difficulties of the working man at a time when the small workshop was giving way to the factory and working men were losing their autonomy, they were able to sort of understand that she too was in a fix, right? That she, you know, she couldn't find work that would support her and they had sympathy for that. And they, they felt that Ballard was, you know, ungentlemanly. In other words, their position was very much one of, um, they felt that their manhood, their selfhood, which they kind of equated with manhood, was threatened, and that Ballard represented everything that was wrong with the new society and the new economy. Interesting. Yeah. So, so she did not do well during her incarceration. And I really enjoyed reading your description of the tombs. There, there was a separate section of the, the prison for women. On the bottom floor, it was used for the most destitute of female prisoners. But the floor above that, where Amelia Norman was held, it was reserved for women who weren't in, in such dire financial circumstances. And Norman fit into that category because she had outside patrons making sure she was as comfortable as she could be under the circumstances. Yes, that's right. So the tombs was really a complex of buildings. It was, it took up a whole block. It was surrounded by a wall and built into the wall were cells that were originally meant for debtors. And another one of these 19th century sort of achievements was the getting rid of uh, debtors prison. You know, the idea that you, you could go to jail for debt. And the cells that were originally meant for debtors at the tombs were instead used for women. So the idea was to keep the women separate from the men. Um, and I think what you're describing is that at the lower level were poorer women, and they were actually used to as you know cleaners in the in the in the jail. So you know if you were a woman, a poor woman, and you were arrested, you could find yourself sweeping the floors in the jail. And that was very typical of all the city uh, welfare institutions, that they used their inmates as labor. Um, that was a feature throughout the 19th century. But Norman, um, and we know this because George Wilkes describes it, what was in one of the better cells. And again, you know, she appears to have been taken care of. One of the, the people she worked for was that he was a, he was young and his father-in-law was a uh, city legislator. He was uh, an alderman and there may have been some poll there. And his office was actually in the tombs because the police office was in the tombs. One of the police offices was in the tombs. And it seems as if there may have been some behind the scenes effort to assist her. The other thing that happened was the Lydia Maria child discovered Norman because she was staying with the family of Isaac Hopper. This was a family of Quakers and they were prison reformers. And what that meant was they were part of the movement to make prisons um, places where you could be reformed instead of just locked up. And the tombs was initially meant to be that kind of a prison. It didn't succeed, but that was the original goal. So what prisoners, vis prison visitors did was they went around and they visited prisoners and they advocated for them. And then that is how, I believe, that is how Lydia Maria Child found Mealy Norman, by going around with Isaac Hopper and his son, John Hopper, to, to the tombs and, and seeing how the prisoners live there. So she, she seems to have had a slightly better situation than other women. One of the things that happened to her in the tombs is the, you know, one of the, when I was reading about Norman, it was clear that the, the crimes that were reported in the penny press were like a kind of what we might almost consider sort of like a television series, you know, that people went to the courtroom and they read about these trials and it was, you know, every week there was a different trial. So it was possible to read about the other people who were in jail at the same time as Norman. And there was a, a bank, a train robbery and the, the wife of the train robber had also been locked up and her husband committed suicide I think he committed suicide. He died in one way or the other. I can't remember now. And Norman was asked by the warden to keep an eye on the wife of this train robber to be sure that she too didn't commit suicide if she learned what happened to her husband. So Norman um, kept an eye on this woman. And this was the, the, the night before her own trial. And what happened was she actually tried to commit suicide herself and was actually rescued by the warden. So she appears while she was in jail to have had you know, kind of a social life with the other women there. 
the prison doctor became very sympathetic to her because she apparently, as I said, she had epilepsy or something. And he, you know, he became aware of that. And he was very interested in, in what he was calling hysteria. Later, Sigmund Freud would have something to say about hysteria, but he was describing it as it was described in the 19th century. It was something he didn't understand very well, but he was interested in. It's very hard to diagnose what she had or what, it, what people in the past had, especially because I'm not a doctor or psychiatrist. Right. Henry Ballard certainly didn't serve himself well during the trial, you write, in the way he held himself anyway. He hid behind a stove in the corner, trying to make himself as invisible as possible. And her attorneys used this to paint him as a coward. Yeah, Henry Ballard was afraid because the public opinion was totally against him. So people threatened him in the courtroom. He only came to the to the trial because he was subpoenaed. So, you know, he, he did not speak. Neither of them um, gave testimony. Neither Ballard nor Norman gave testimony at the trial. And I think I think Ballard probably just didn't want to because he was afraid. And I think Norman didn't give testimony because they wanted to her lawyers wanted to present her as this violated maiden. But she had, in fact, said things like, I wish I had killed the damn Yankee, right? So that, you know, if she got up and said something like that in the courtroom, that wouldn't go very well for her. So during the trial, Ballard, you know, hid and people called out for him. And as at the end of the day, when he left, they hit him on the shoulders with their umbrellas. Maybe a, a, a memory of what Norman had done to him in his importing office. So basically the prosecution's strategy, you write, was to focus on the crime itself, and her defense was, of course, to focus on her past as an abused woman at the hands of Henry Ballard. Right, that's right, yes, yeah. And I guess what I'm saying is that it was much more complicated than that, that her lawyers were making use of the popular stories at the time to get sympathy from the jury, which they succeeded in doing, but that Norman herself you know, was a person, you know, I mean, she had a whole history and a whole set of experiences and, and she had agency and it's, it's hard to know exactly how she felt or why she did what she did. But she, she is very much in some respects, like other young women of her time and place in terms of growing up in the country, migrating to the city, working as a servant, suffering in the depression, um, turning to prostitution, all those things were things that many other young women did. Um, she seems to have been very well liked by her employers and her friends. So she was a complicated person, and I really wish it was possible to know more about her. I mean, well, I, I think one thing I would like to say is one of the things that really interested me about this story is that Amelia Norman's crime and her trial happened at a time that coincided with the beginning of the movement for women's rights. And when we think about the movement for women's rights, what we mostly remember is suffrage, which was ultimately successful. But if we think about the movement for women's rights at the time that it was happening, there were other things happening. And two of those things had to do, or one of those things really had to do with the movement to change seduction in law. And one of these was the movement by the American Female Moral Reform Society to criminalize seduction. And it's very interesting to realize that they succeeded at this in the spring of 1848 in the New York legislature at the same time that the New York legislature passed its Married Women's Property Act. And the Married Women's Property Act allowed married women to continue to control their property after they married. This was another one of these old laws that was being thrown down in this period before that, when women married, they lost their civil identities and their, their custody of their children, their right to their, their property. And the Married Women's Reform Act recognized that. And it was the beginning of a crack. It was a fissure in the, in the, the laws that made women less than full adults. And this, again, this is similar to the way the seduction law worked. And that summer was the Seneca Falls Convention. So when we think back at the, to this time, we don't think about seduction law. But in fact, at the very beginning, you know, we forget it because the concept of seduction is so obsolete, we can hardly imagine it. 
And there's a second thread to this, which is that one of Norman's lawyers, the lead lawyer, who was called David Graham Jr., in 1846, New York revised its constitution. And as part of that, New York decided to update its code of laws. And one of the people appointed to do this was David Graham. And in the code of laws that ultimately his committee came up with, there's a section which gives women the right to sue for seduction on their own behalf. So what that did was it eliminated this old idea that if a woman was seduced, it basically represented loss of labor to her master or her father. And it instead recognized the emotional um, and financial burden that seduction laid on a woman. And they actually argued, they, they, they said that, you know, a woman, a man, if he's defrauded of his money, has legal redress, but a woman who is defrauded of her virtue does not. So they recognize that. Now, both of these things, these two efforts to bring down the seduction tort, you know, they kind of fizzled in a way, and it's sort of complicated. And here I'm going to say you have to read the book if you really want to understand this because it's very complicated. And look at the footnotes. But basically the reason for that is that seduction, you know, we've forgotten about it because we think of it as a quaint Victorian thing. But it was meaningful to people at the time. It was meaningful to people who cared about women's rights because it wasn't just that they couldn't vote, but they couldn't go to college. They couldn't train for professions. You know, they they couldn't walk down the street and be safe. You know, they couldn't they couldn't do most jobs. You know, they, their lives were extremely, extremely constrained in ways in ways that we can hardly imagine. So the, the, what was interesting to me, one of the many things that was interesting to me about Amelia Norman's story is that it reminds us to think about past events within their own context. In other words, you know, it, it forced me to sort of focus on that very interesting moment when the women's rights movement emerged and say, what else was going on at that time? And one of the things that was going on was this, this effort to dismantle all these laws and, and the seduction law, which we forget about was actually part of this larger movement that included abolition. It included women's rights movement too. So she was found not guilty, as you said, and she was treated as a heroine. There were cries of joy, but by the public uh, cheering as she exited the courtroom. But what happened after that? Did she continue to get buoyed by this positive support or did she stay despondent? Well, what happened was Lydia Maria Child took her home and found a job for her. So um, she apparently was despondent for a while. And then Lydia Maria Child found her a job as a servant for someone in the country. In other words, the idea was to get her out of the city. She had a child. The child is barely mentioned in the trial. You know, in my first book, when I wrote about abandoned babies, it became clear to me that before the 1850s, the deaths of poor young children was tragic, obviously, but it was normal. It was something that happened. And I don't know if Amelia Norman's child died or if um, she was made to put this child out for adoption. We never know the child's name, the child's sex, nothing. But she was, she was, the child was not with her when she went to Lydia Maria Child's house. So what finally happened to her she worked for this this um, family in the country, and then she was evidently discovered by the press. And then Lydia Maria Child made it an effort to find her another job. And then Child hints that she kind of didn't come to a good end. But it's really very hard to know. I found her father's will, and her father evidently lost track of her too, because he seems not to really know where she is, or you know, he doesn't mention any husband or children or anything like that. I mean, she he seems to have lost touch with her. So it's hard to know what happened. I actually went to the, the graveyard where the Normans are buried and I did not see her there. So I don't, I don't really know what happened. But one of the things that I did discover was that she had a kind of an afterlife, um, a sort of a literary afterlife. So she became someone, you know, everyone had heard of her. So she, she was mentioned in all kinds of newspaper articles as examples of, you know, violent women and prostitutes and this, that, and the other. George Thompson, a novelist, wrote this very sort of steamy novel where he imagines these courtesans gathering in a house near the Astor, house, Astor Hotel, um, and he includes Norman among them. The book's called The Countess, if you want to try and read it. It's somewhat unreadable, but interesting just because she's in there. 
I think more, even more interesting is that David Graham, her lawyer, had a, David Graham died fairly young. He died in his 40s, but he had a brother, John Graham, who was also a lawyer. And John Graham represented two men who killed their wives' lovers. Um, one was um, McFarland and one was Francis Barton Key. These were famous 19th century cases. And in both of those cases, he mentioned um, the Amelia Norman trial to his the very interested courtroom and basically argued that just like um, these men, Amelia Norman was defending her honor. So as late as 1850 and 1870, John Graham was able to evoke Amelia Norman and people knew what he was talking about. So her memory lived for quite a long time. So what about Henry Ballard? What happened to him after this? Oh, Henry Ballard slunk home. He went back home to Boston. He no longer had a business of his own. He appears to have worked for his family. And then he died. He died very young. And what's what I discovered about him, I, I used I looked in genealogies to see genealogies are not terribly reliable sources, but one of the interesting things about the Ballard family genealogy is that, you know, it just says like nothing about him. <laughs> you know, they just kind of wiped him out. So I'm curious, if you don't mind me asking, what do you do at the Library of Congress? What is your day like? Well, first, I, I do need to say that I, I wrote this book outside of my responsibilities at the Library of Congress. In fact, I started it long before I came to the Library of Congress, and I began it with a grant from the New York Historical Society, for which I am obviously very grateful. What I do at the Library of Congress is I'm the curator of early American manuscripts. So, I mean, this is actually sort of funny because what I do there is I'm the curator of the George Washington Papers, the Thomas Jefferson Papers, the James Madison Papers, and lots of other things. I mean, I'm in charge of something like 3,000 collections, large and small, but those are the ones that get a lot of use and attention. So in my day life, my day, you know, my day job, I deal with these you know, very important men, right, who are dead. But I write about these very poor women in my writing life. So I sort of have two lives as a historian. So so what is the process for someone if they want to come in and see George Washington's papers? How does that work? Well, George Washington's papers have been digitized and published. So what you can do is you can go to the Library of Congress, which is www.loc.gov, click on Digital Collections, and I can give you this link if you want, and you will see the George Washington Papers. The George Washington Papers were one of the very earliest examples of a library digitizing a manuscript collection. It was done in the mid-90s. Um, so it's a, it's a very funny thing. It's like an antique uh, website. We have updated it, so it's not really antique. But you can read George Washington's papers at home. You can then go to a website called Founders Online, HTTPS founders.archives.gov, which is a national archives website where you can see the published edition of Washington's papers, which is easier to read, obviously, because it's transcribed. The notes are really excellent and they explain a lot of things that you might not otherwise understand. And if you look at those two websites in conjunction, you could see Washington's handwriting. You know, you could see letters that he wrote in his hand and also letters that he received. And then you can go over to Founders Online and you can read the transcription and the notes which explain things. So, you know, a lot of people enjoy doing that. It, a lot of scholars have written a lot of books based on um, th that information. Oh, that's really neat. So for people who want to find out more about you, your books, your work, where should we direct them? Well, <laughs> I don't do social media, so all you can do is read the books. I, I exist only in my books. <laughs> well, well, that's not a bad place to exist. <laughs> yeah, I just don't do it. I just don't do it. I, I, I write my books and you may read them and that's it. Social media can get a little overwhelming sometimes. Yes. And your, your books are available wherever books are sold. That's right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for spending some time with, with us today. My pleasure. Again, I have been speaking to Julie Miller. Her book is called Cry of Murder on Broadway, A Woman's Ruin and revenge 
in Old New York. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.